Welcome to the History of the Klondike Gold Rush podcast, episode 15, Boomtown Dawson. I'm Keith Halliday. And I'm Pascal Halliday. Today, we want to pick up the trail of Tappan Adney. Back in episode 13, he arrived in Dawson City just as the Yukon River was freezing up. That was October 1897. When he pulled ashore on the Dawson Riverbank, the city was just one year old, halfway along its meteoric two-year rise from Moose Pasture to the so-called Paris of the North. For a short while, depending on which population estimates you believe, the biggest city north of Seattle and west of Winnipeg. In August 1896, a year before, it was the site of First Nations camps and the odd prospector's tent. Joe Ledoux, the trader we told you about in earlier episodes, arrived around then. Hearing of the gold strike, he did not sprint for the creeks to stake a claim. Instead, he laid out a 160-acre town site, named it after Yukon explorer and mapper George Dawson, and registered it with the Northwest Mounted Police downriver at 40 Mile. This would make his fortune. According to his obituary in the New York Times and the plaque in his honor put up by the Klondike Centennial Society, Ledoux hurried back to the site after doing his paperwork at 40 Mile and built the first cabin. He soon had a store, a saloon, and a sawmill, and could sell lots for $5,000 apiece, as the population boomed from one white person, Ledoux himself, to 40,000 by mid-1898. By that point, Ledoux had cashed in and left the country. He went back to his hometown of Schuyler Falls, New York, and bought his own steamship, which sank, and got married to a 27-year-old woman named Kitty Mason. But life in the North had been hard on Ledoux. He died of tuberculosis just a few years later, in 1901, at the age of 47. When Adney landed, he found 30 to 40 log cabins and tents along with caches, either boxes or sometimes sawed-up boats on poles to keep supplies away from the dogs in the water. He soon discovered he wasn't actually in Dawson yet, but what he called a flourishing suburb named Klondike City. This had been the location of a First Nations fishing camp until the fish wheels were destroyed by stampeders floating rafts of logs to Dawson. Adney also soon discovered that sourdoughs considered it snooty to call the place anything other than its common name, Laustown. It would become famous around the world for its wild living and prostitution. As for Dawson itself, it was located just across the Klondike River. It was still a hastily erected frontier town. The Dawson that would be called the Paris of the North, of dance hall girls and fancy restaurants with string orchestras, was still being built. When Adney arrived, it had about 300 buildings, plus the Northwest Mounted Police Base. This featured eight or ten log buildings around a parade square, with the British flag flying out front. By this point, surveyor William Ogilvie had taken a break from surveying the claims on the creeks and surveyed the regular grid of streets we see in Dawson today. The buildings were a random selection of log cabins, tents, old boats turned into makeshift buildings, and other kinds of shacks. Ledoux's original cabin sat in the middle of a street, since it was built before the grid layout had decided which streets went where. Big log and tin-sided warehouses belonging to the Alaska Commercial Company, or its competitors, were along the waterfront. In addition to the saloons and hotels, churches were starting to pop up, and a hospital as well. Flour was $75 to $120 for a 50-pound sack, if you could find it. Adjusted for inflation, that's more than 70 times what flour costs in Yukon grocery stores today. A dog musher was offering to make a trip back to Dai when the rivers were well frozen. He would take mail for a dollar a letter or passengers for $600 to $1,000. And you had to walk behind the sleigh and help make camp. 
The shelves of the Alaska Commercial Company store offered mostly just sugar and axe handles at this point, although the Riverbank warehouses were relatively well-stocked with goods that had already been ordered and set aside for customers who'd ordered early. Troublingly for a guy who had been focusing so much on when he could get off the river to the safety of Dawson City, there was already concern about having enough food for the winter. Over 500 people were said to have left town to go downriver, where some of the Alaskan communities were said to have enough food to make it through the season. It's widely known that the Northwest Mounted Police required Stampeders crossing the Chilkoot to have one ton of supplies, enough for a year. But remember, Adney and his wave of Stampeders crossed before that border post got set up in early 1898. They, and anyone coming up the river from St. Michael, might have come without a full outfit. Adney's partner, the California rowing champion, seems to have been in that category. Everything depended on whether the last steamers of the season would make it upriver with supplies from St. Michael before the river totally froze up. And, as Adney's own adventures on the upper Yukon River showed, ice was running in the river and it looked increasingly unlikely to stay open much longer. Wild talk began to spread, that some men were planning to seize the warehouses and divide the food up equally between everyone in town. That may sound outlandish today, but such incidents weren't unheard of in Alaska. The 20 Northwest Mounted Police officers in Dawson set to guarding the warehouses. Folks in Dawson would have been even more alarmed if they had known what was happening around 250 miles downstream at Circle City. This old prospector boom town was a shadow of its former self after the rush to Bonanza Creek, but it still existed. There was a motley collection of old-timers who hadn't believed the stories about the Klondike, plus those who had already floated downriver from Dawson, worried about food or frustrated that all the good creeks were already staked, plus Chichacos coming up from the coast, in some cases without a winter's worth of supplies. These miners were enraged when three steamers passed Circle City without dropping off supplies, since they were headed to Dawson, where a large number of people were in need. The miners pointed out that they were also in need, and decided to take things into their own hands. They inventoried the goods in the two stores at Circle City, made a list of those in Circle City without enough supplies, and then did the math. It didn't look pretty. They formed a committee and demanded that enough goods to fill the gap be taken off the next steamer. When the next steamer arrived, it was met by the committee. To help make their point, they were armed with Winchester rifles. It was a holdup, but it was orderly. The committee organized goods to be taken off the ships to the stores, carefully tallied and guarded. Then each miner on the list went to the store, paid his bill to the store clerk, and took the merchandise away. It worked so well, they did it to the next ship, too. The captain of the second steamer protested vigorously, telling the miners that they were setting a bad precedent. Would some gang of future tough guys, perhaps, do the same thing when a steamer was taking their gold back out of the country? But... With a hungry winter coming, no one at Circle City was much interested in such quibbles. The steamers eventually reached Dawson. The first had about 125 tons of freight, a considerable amount of supplies even after the miners at Circle City lightened the load by 20 tons. Then another steamer arrived, having left its barge behind and being 37 tons lighter after the miners at Circle City stocked their larders. This might sound like a lot of food, but it had to last until the steamers arrived the next year which sometimes didn't happen until early July. It took that long for the ice to go out all the way on the lower Yukon River. Take the 125 tons on the first steamer mentioned. That's about 250,000 pounds. Probably only about half was food. The rest was blankets, nails, ropes, or other such supplies. No one knew how many people were in the Klondike by then, and how many really had brought outfits for a whole year. 
if that shipment had to be divided between, say, a thousand people, then that works out to only 125 pounds of food per person for the winter. Think of how much just one week's worth of your groceries weigh. At this point, Captain Constantine of the Northwest Mounted Police posted this notice. Quote, The undersigned officials of the Canadian government, having carefully looked over the present distressing situation in regards to the supply of food for the winter, find that the stock on hand is not sufficient to meet the wants of the people now in the district, and see but one way out of the difficulty, and that is immediate move downriver of all those who are now unsupplied to Fort Yukon. That's about 300 miles downriver in Alaska where there is a large stock of provisions. In a few days, the river will be closed, and the move must be made now, if at all. It is absolutely hazardous to build hopes upon the arrival of other boats. The notice went on to say that to remain at Dawson was to court death from starvation. At this point, one of the last Stampeder boats came in from the Chilkoot route. It was a fellow Adney knew from the Chilkoot Trail, the guy we mentioned before who had 600 pounds of newspapers he was hoping to sell to news-starved miners. Newspapers, not food. Captain Hansen, one of the merchants, began to repeat Captain Constantine's message more succinctly. Adney says he harangued groups of men in the streets, saying, quote, Go! Go! Flee for your lives! Do you expect to catch grayling all winter? Meanwhile, Captain Healy, another merchant and, confusingly, also a ship captain, was of the opposite view. He thought that there was enough food in the miners' caches out on the creeks and in the warehouses to get through the winter. He annoyed government officials by saying, based on his knowledge of trading up and down the river, that there was actually less food downstream at Fort Yukon than there was at Dawson City. Adney had an outfit with food to survive the winter, but his partner Brown did not. But Brown decided to stay in the hope that Healy was right and that there would be opportunities to earn money and buy food that would come along. Quite a gamble. Having decided to stay, the next job for Adney and his partner was to get a cabin. Since very basic cabins were selling for over $500, they decided to build their own. After all, there were lots of trees around Dawson. So they found another fellow so the three of them could share the work of cutting the logs, dragging them to the cabin site, and erecting the building. At this point, the classic Yukon cabin was around 12 feet by 14 feet square, with the walls made of logs stacked 9 or 10 logs high, with moss chinking in between. Some had an elevated floor six inches off the dirt, others did not. Adney's cabin was tall enough so that he could stand in the middle, and his new cabin mate, who was shorter, could stand by the walls. The roof extended four to six feet in front of the cabin, forming a porch. The roof was thin logs covered with six inches of moss or dirt. This would eventually grow in with grasses or flowers, but for now they would have frozen dirt and moss as their roof. You put a door in the front and a window on the sunny side of the cabin. This window would have glass panes if you could find them, or white ginger ale bottles lined up, or maybe just a thin white flower sack nailed over the hole. Heat came from a metal wood stove, available from the tinsmith in Dawson, with three lengths of stovepipe for $65. The stovepipe went through the roof, kept somewhat safe by passing through a square oil can filled with clay to prevent the stovepipe from setting the roof logs on fire. A small vent went in the roof or high in the walls in case the wood stove made the cabin too hot. When you were done with the walls and roof, it was time to build your furniture. The beds are simply wooden platforms covered with spruce boughs and a flour sack stuffed with socks as a pillow. Light came from candles or a homemade lamp made out of a milk or meat can with a loose wick at one end burning bacon grease. Adney said that it took three weeks of what he called brutal labor just to get the walls and small roof logs up, 
Still no dirt on the roof, door, window, or furniture. During this time, they lived in their tent, even though the temperature dived to almost 40 below. The stove in the tent kept it warm if he kept stoking the fire, but during the night, the wood burned down and it got cold. Basically, the same temperature as outside. They slept in their clothes, Adney and his two cabin mates, together, on a bed, between 13 pairs of blankets. Adney says they never felt warm. They soon threw away their big city thermometer, since it was useless in extreme cold. Sourdoughs had a different system. You put a series of liquids with different freezing points in little bottles and waited to see which one of them froze. There were various options for liquids, but some of the more common ones were as follows. Mercury would freeze at 40 below Fahrenheit, which is also minus 40 Celsius. Most city thermometers use mercury, so they were useless if it got colder than 40 below. Adney says experienced dog mushers carried mercury in a small bottle tied to their sleds and didn't travel if it was frozen solid. Coal oil froze at 50 below Fahrenheit, minus 45 Celsius. Adney says some grades froze at different temperatures, which makes it confusing. Perry Davis Painkiller, a popular medicine at the time, turned white at 60 below Fahrenheit or minus 51 Celsius. It then crystallized at 70 below Fahrenheit or minus 56 Celsius. It then froze solid at 75 below Fahrenheit or minus 59 Celsius. At some point, even colder than that, Hudson's Bay rum was said to freeze. The coldest temperature ever officially recorded in the Yukon is 81.4 below Fahrenheit. That's minus 63 Celsius. That was at Snag in 1947. The record in Dawson City is 73 below Fahrenheit, or minus 58 Celsius. Those are pretty low temperatures to be looking forward to if you're still in a tent working on a half-finished cabin. As the temperatures fell, Adney and his partner struggled with cutting logs and building furniture. You can see why finishing the cabin and getting the door on was a huge milestone. Adney estimates there were about 6,000 people in Dawson at that point and that about 5,000 of them weren't sure if their provisions would last until spring. A market for flour quickly developed, with ups and downs as wild as any stock market. As Captains Constantine and Hansen warned of starvation, flour was selling in the open market for between $75 and $120 per 50-pound sack. Such a sack might cost less than $1.50 in Seattle, or $6 at regular store prices along the Yukon River. The warehouses discovered some duplicate orders and sold the excess at regular store prices. It was considered bad form to profiteer too obviously off the miners' hunger. But this supply was limited, so most of the trading was between miners themselves. Old-timers looked down on speculating in food. And if they had surplus, they'd usually sell it to a neighbor at cost. But some newcomers saw the opportunity for big profits. One fellow even tried to corner the flower market. He invested heavily in buying 180 sacks from downriver and anywhere else he could find a sack for sale, hoping eventually to sell for $100 a sack. High prices prompted others to leave Dawson with business plans to bring back large quantities of food over the frozen river before spring came. But then it slowly began to emerge that Captain Healy, the one with the contrarian view that there was enough food in miners' caches to make it through winter, was right. Word spread that you could buy a sack of flour on El Dorado Creek for just $25. A rumor spread that one miner had 81 sacks in his cash. Soon, flower prices in Dawson began to slip. The guy who tried to corner the market had to sell out in a hurry to avoid bankruptcy. By January 1898, the price of flour had fallen by around half to just $50 per sack. By spring, it was down to 17 Ironically, when those that did take government advice to go to Fort Yukon actually got there, 
they found that there was a food shortage there as well. It turned out to be a good thing that more people did not leave Dawson at the time. Skeptical Captain Healy was right in the end. Not that it was easy living in Dawson that winter. A neighbor of Adney's penned this poem. One cold Alaska's winter day, I sat within my lonely shack. Without old Boreas held full sway, while cold came in through every crack. Upon the stove was scarce a snack, my daily meal, a lone flapjack. At one point, a Dutchman showed up in Dawson with a turkey he had brought over the ice and snow from Skagway by dog sled. It was exhibited to what Adney calls the wistful gaze of the public in the Pioneer Saloon until it was raffled off, earning $174, that's almost $5,000 in today's money, for the Dutchman. Adney's own Christmas dinner was festive but spartan. On the 24th, his cabin mate unexpectedly announced he had invited people over for a feast. Adney had bacon and flour left, but no condensed milk, and planned a Christmas dinner of soup, flapjacks, and beans. This being insufficiently festive, his cabin mate went out and scrounged up a can of condensed cream, two cans of French peas, and a can of turkey. Now they were ready for a party. Over the winter, life slipped into a rhythm. People without claims, like Adney's partner Brown, could work for good wages on the creeks, even if the work was backbreaking, as we'll discuss in a future episode on how mining in the Klondike worked. The saloon soon became the center of Dawson's social life. It was the last winter of the old-school Yukon Saloon before the huge wave of stampeders arrived after breakup in 1898 and the era of the Dawson Dance Hall began. The first place to go was a saloon called the Opera House. The price of admission was 50 cents, which you paid by buying a drink or a cigar at the bar as soon as you arrived. However, the Opera House did not last long in Dawson. After a raucous masquerade ball the night before American Thanksgiving, it burned to the ground. After that, Pete's Place was one of the most popular saloons. It had no cover charge, so even a broke stampeder, a busted man, as they said at the time, could go in, warm himself up by the stove, get a drink from the water barrel, and socialize. Pete's Place was a two-story log building. The bar room was the main floor, a low-ceilinged room about 30 feet by 40 feet. On the left was the bar, a rough pine counter painted red with mirrors on the wall behind. On the right was the lunch counter, while the dance floor was in the far corner marked by a low wooden railing. The so-called orchestra sat on a raised platform on one side of the dance floor and typically had a piano, a violin, and a flute. Pete's had four smoking kerosene lamps and a well-stocked wood stove, usually surrounded by what Adney describes as a motley crowd. Quote, Miners, government officials, mounted policemen in uniform, gamblers, both amateur and professional, incitified clothes and boiled shirts, old-timers and newcomers, claim brokers and men with claims to sell, busted men and millionaires. Pete himself was a professional bartender and dressed the part, with his hair carefully oiled and parted and with a dark curled mustache. Dancing was a big moneymaker at Pete's place. The system worked like this. The ladies at Pete's place were busy encouraging men to dance, and a young man served as an enthusiastic MC to encourage anyone who hesitated. Adney quotes one of his spiels, quote, Come on, boys, you can all waltz. Let's have a nice, long, juicy waltz. Then, when three or four couples were on the floor, he would tell the band to fire away. After the couples had circled the floor a half dozen times, the music would stop suddenly. Each couple would then push through the rubberneckers and proceed directly to the bar. The bartender would weigh a dollar's worth of gold dust out of each man's poke and give him a whiskey usually well watered down. The lady would then get a white chip as her commission, worth 25 cents. A good MC could get over 100 dances done in an evening, and the women could make $25 or more per night. 
a fair amount of money when the average man outside made around $2 per day. The saloon sold a wide range of liquor. This included anything from watered-down outside whiskey, locally brewed beer of varying quality, to local hooch, often made from sourdough and brown sugar in a still made from oil cans with pieces of India rubber boots cemented together, heated by a wood stove. The resulting clear liquor was flavored with blueberries or peaches, and was said to make the regular drinker go insane, but was nonetheless popular. The hooch contributed to enthusiasm for the miners' main pastime, gambling. Every saloon had gambling layouts for games like blackjack, poker, roulette, craps, and faro. Faro was the favorite. The smallest chip was 25 cents, and a typical faro table extracted $50 or more from the players each night. Adney saw a young boy who had sold a rich claim lose $18,000 in one night. A dog musher named Joe Brand walked in, put $100 on the high card, and doubled his money. Looking at the slip with his winnings written on it, he asked, Is this good for drinks? Informed that it was, he ordered 200 glasses of whiskey and had them circulated around the bar. For the men in from the creeks, going home after the saloon wasn't an option. They either stayed at a friend's cabin or took their chances in a Dawson hotel. Adney says, quote, Not even a person whose sensibilities had been blunted by a year in the Yukon could abide in one even for one night in comfort or safety. As Adney points out, Dawson hotels weren't known for their luxury. It often involved staying in the attic of a bar, which had taken to calling itself a hotel, in a shared room with bunks. Each bunk had a nail to hang your coat on. You generally didn't take off any other clothes than your coat before getting in between the lice-filled blankets. Then, when you got back to your cabin, you had to wash your clothes, a major undertaking in the winter. Adney says that, quote, Persons regarded themselves as particularly cleanly if they changed their underwear every two weeks. So, that's how the first wave of stampeders passed the winter of 1897-98. While, scattered from Skagway to Dye and all the way to Bennett, the next wave waited for spring breakup to launch their boats. If you liked this episode, please tell a friend and rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you really liked the episode, please go to our website, which also has links and maps about this episode, and make a donation. That's klondikegoldrush.org. Even a few bucks helps cover the costs of equipment and hosting. We didn't do this podcast to get rich, but as an old miner might say, it sure would be nice to make enough to get our grub steak back. (laughs) 